It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? My next guest is a Reiki master. She is the founder and owner of Ha Healing Hub. After moving through feelings of abandonment, grief, and shame as a transracial adoptee and motherless daughter, she is deeply devoted to helping others heal themselves through Reiki, meditation, and writing. Her name is Heather Schultz Gittens, born in Seoul, Korea, and adopted as an infant. She grew up in New York. On this episode, Heather shares a part of her relinquishment and adoption journey as a transnational adoptee. She gives us a glimpse into one of the most loving and impactful relationships in her life, especially during deeply troubling times. Heather endured multiple losses at a young age and is a survivor through it all. She is also a full-time lecturer in the Department of Communication Studies at Baruch College. She teaches professional speech communication, introduction to business communication, and business communication. Her development skills, including interviewing and networking and self-care and self-loss tools, including positive affirmations and mindfulness. She received a Bachelor of Arts in Journalism and Master of Public Administration from Baruch College. Allow me to introduce you to someone who was a writer in the Adoptive Voices Writing Group created by Sarah Easterly, Cohort 9, in the Hone Your Craft track, where I met her. It is a privilege for Heather to read one of her pieces for us today, written during her time in the group. Its title is Declaration to Self. She speaks with intentionality and uses the gift of pause to convey exactly what she thinks and feels about the subject at hand. Well, Heather, I am so glad that you are having a conversation with me and my listeners get to hear, and you are just a phenomenal person. You're doing a lot of things to make your journey as an adoptee, as a South Korean transnational adoptee, beneficial for you and your family. Thank you for for being here. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for inviting me to be on your podcast. Yes, it's an honor to have you. And I know today is a particularly significant day for you. Um, I know the story about your relationship with your grandmother, who has made her transition, but today was her birthday. And so I think that we could start there, just in honor of her, whatever you want to say about her. Thank you, Jennifer, for giving me this space to talk about my dear grandmother. 
This is the mother of my adoptive father, and she was the first person to hold me when I arrived to JFK Airport on November 10th, 1984. And she always joked around with me when I was living with her for 13 years as an adult that my adopted mother never forgave her because my grandma was the first one to hold me when I got to the airport, not my mom. And my grandmother just was standing in a spot and everybody else was standing in another spot thinking I was going to come out the other way. And the woman just plopped me into my grandma's arms and we've always had a very deep connection. I remember going to her house as a kid and she made delicious split pea soup. She was always cooking, she was always baking. And I had the honor and pleasure to live with her for 13 years. I do credit my grandmother for saving my life. Back in 2002 to 2005, I was in my first relationship. It was physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually abusive. I didn't love myself. I didn't like myself. And I stayed in that relationship because I thought at that time I deserved to be punished. I thought I deserved to be hit because I was too afraid to hurt myself. So in a weird way, at that time, I felt that my ex-boyfriend was doing me a favor. Towards the end of that relationship, I ended up leaving my house with my adoptive father, stepmom, and siblings. I was living in my car, motels, and friends' houses while with my abusive ex-boyfriend. It was a very crazy time in my life, and my father was worried about me, so he called my grandma to let her know what was going on. He never asked her to invite me to live with her, but I do have a feeling that he knew that she was going to do that. So she invited me to live with her and I moved in with her. I still continued to see the abusive ex-boyfriend at that time. It culminated in me going to a psychiatric ward for five days, four nights. My grandma came to visit me every day, as well as a close neighbor, my grandma's roommate, who I considered an aunt, and my best friend. I did not share the information that I was in a psychiatric ward with anyone else, aside from the people that I mentioned. And there were very strict visiting hours, and my grandma was with me every day. I remember the day that I was discharged and I was actually able to experience the sunlight again because when we were in the psychiatric ward, they would not let us outside. So I did not see direct sunlight for five days, four nights. She was really concerned about me because she said I was like a zombie. My grandmother was very spiritual and she brought me to a psychic pharmacist who she credits with saving her life. I had a consultation with him. 
he gave me a reading and he gave me some herbal supplements. So that really helped me in my healing journey as well as weekly therapy sessions. So I did have a therapy session before ending up in the psychiatric ward and I continued seeing that therapist and got back on track. My grandma encouraged me to transfer to CUNY Baruch College from Hofstra University. I didn't really fit in at Hofstra. I didn't feel seen, heard, or acknowledged from my professors and my classmates. I always considered myself a city girl. In fact, my grandmother, she was the first one to bring me on a New York City subway when I was in seventh grade. I remember we spent the weekend in New York City. It was my grandmother, my stepsister, and I. It was such a magical weekend. She took us to see our first Broadway play. We saw Miss Saigon. It was incredible. We rode the subway. We stayed at a hotel. My grandma is very, very street savvy and she loves the New York City grew up in the Bronx and I really thank her for all the opportunities that she gave me from when I was a child all the way up into being an adult. As I listen to you describe her, it's not happenstance or no coincidence. It's, I think, synchronicity that we're recording today. For the audience, we're recording March 17th and this will air you know, after that, sometime after that. But the fact that I can be with you and hear you honor such a wonderful person in your life, yet just it it really warms my heart to hear that you received that because all the things you described, and I really appreciate you being so vulnerable here because I never know who needs to hear your story. And when you share about the abusive relationship and the psych ward and your grandmother in many ways saving you. Yeah, it speaks to the person she was and your ability to receive that from her. And it sounds like the bond started the moment you got off the plane. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. It's beautiful to have someone in your life when when you need the love that you so deserve. I don't know where I heard this many years ago that the people who love you when you need it are your family. And clearly your grandmother played a really big part in your family. I'd like you to share wherever you want to start and however much you want to share your journey as an adoptee born in another country. So I was born in... Seoul in South Korea on July 4th, 1984. From what I know from the adoption agency, Eastern Social Welfare Society in Korea, I was born in a birth clinic. I was there for about a week. The reason why they kept me there a week was they were hoping that my birth mother might come back for me after she gave birth to me. She didn't, so they brought me to the the orphanage adoption agency, Eastern Social Welfare Society, and I was there for a month. I was 
with a foster mother for three months before I arrived to New York City on November 10th, 1984. I was adopted by a couple where my adopted mother, due to having multiple sclerosis and endometriosis, was not able to conceive naturally. So my adopted parents adopted me. And my mother wrote this beautiful journal for me from 1984 to 1987 that I didn't know existed until I turned 30. And when I got back from visiting Korea for the first time in 2014, just about the whole adoption process, why she and my father decided to name me Heather. They named me after Heather the flower. She talked about my temper tantrums in the journal. She talked about how she didn't want me to forget that she and my father honored where I came from, Korea, and they didn't want me to forget my Korean heritage. I learned from one of my aunts that my mom wanted to put me into Korean school. And unfortunately, that just didn't work out because when she adopted me, she was in a wheelchair. She had the pro chronic progressive form of multiple sclerosis. And at that time in the 80s, there wasn't as much research and as much medication that there is now to treat multiple sclerosis. So she wanted me so badly that she did not disclose to the adoption agency that she had multiple sclerosis and she borrowed her cousin's cast and put it on her leg and made it seem that was the reason that she was in a wheelchair to deflect from her having this debilitating disease, multiple sclerosis. As a little girl, there usually was a nurse at home with my mother and I while my father was at work helping to take care of her. I always knew that she was sick. She and my father did end up getting a divorce early on. My father met another woman who was previously divorced and had two daughters from her first marriage, and they moved into my house very early. I was only four. Mm, and it's young. It just was a lot to process because all I knew was that mom was sick, and I didn't understand why, why well, this new woman and her two daughters were moving into my house. And I was very possessive over my toys, my home, and definitely my father growing up. And it was very difficult for me to, to share all that, especially as a four-year-old wondering when your mother's going to come home. Sure. I wasn't able to process that at all. She unfortunately passed away when I was 10 in 1995. She was only 39 years old. This year, 2023, is a huge year for me because I am 38, going to be 39. And I always told myself my 39th birthday is going to be difficult for me because that was the age my mother was when she died. Mm -hmm. It's This year is a bigger year for me than my 40th, actually, because of because of that connection with my mother. I can relate and to that, yeah. 
and how I can relate to that is my birth mother died on her 49th birthday. And when I turned 50, like was about to turn 50, I just felt real strange. Thank you for sharing that, Jennifer. It's, it's a lot. It's, I can't find the words to describe all that, but it's, it's a lot. It is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember that so well. It's, I just, yeah, I just didn't, I didn't know what, I didn't really know what to feel. I just remember feeling numb and, you know, if I make it to 50, what does that mean? You know, like I just had, like, I think questions. I'm sorry that you lost your mother. And at that age, I can only imagine feeling very confused, probably from four years old until she passed about what was going on. And after she passed, just what is really going on? That's a lot to carry. And we're going to talk about grief. I'm I'm so glad you, you want to do that with me because I think it's a big enough subject. It's a really big subject that warrants attention, especially on my podcast. I never fully processed my mother's death as a child. I just didn't have the space and the tools and support to do so. My father, yes, he provided for me physically. I always had a roof above my head. There was always food on the table. In terms of being emotionally available, he was not there. It just was not in his capacity to provide that to me. So I did spend a lot of time by myself as a child. Growing up as a preteen and a teenager, I had a very strong group of friends who were basically my therapist. They supported me. They made me feel seen, heard, and acknowledged. And I'm really grateful for them, as well as my grandmother. I mentioned my grandmother earlier. I always look forward to going to grandma's house. It just was a very sacred time for me. I felt like I could open up to my grandmother about anything. And I know how dear my mother was to my grandmother. In my mother's journal, she wrote about what a big help my grandmother was to her when she needed grandma mm. in terms of like taking care of me. Right. So would you like to get right into the topic of grief. I know a little bit about what I've studied through Elizabeth Kugler-Ross's work, The Five Stages. What would you say about the five stages of grief? Does that resonate with you? Some of the stages resonate with me and some of them don't. In terms of grieving my grandmother's death, so just backing up, my grandmother died in November 2021. I was fortunate to spend her last few days alive with her at the hospital and hospice. I remember I flew down on Thanksgiving in 2021. I was with her the entire time at the hospital. And when they moved her from the hospital to hospice, I was very solid. I was pretty much the rock and anchor of my family. My dad came down to Florida. His brother, who was a year older than my father, and my uncle, who my grandmother was living with in Florida, 
he was there, all of his daughters, he has three daughters, some of my cousins from New York, they weren't able to come down. I stayed really strong for them, but I did cry on the plane ride on the way there on Thanksgiving. I just needed to get that out. And what brought me comfort was, I remember I was in a window seat on the plane and I looked out the window and I saw a rainbow. When I see a rainbow, I know that my late sister is with me. So she comes up in the form of a rainbow. She also passed in 2021. Unexpectedly, she had a heart attack and she was only 33 years old. And we were close growing up, not so much as adults, but we did share a bedroom our entire childhood. So we traded lots of secrets. We kept those secrets throughout all the years. So I have a lot of fond memories with her. And I remember when I looked at the window and I saw the rainbow, it gave me a lot of reassurance. And I took that as a sign that my sister was waiting for my grandmother to transition and she was going to help my grandma transition. So I was able to to be strong and be that rock and anchor for the rest of my family. When grandma was in the hospital and hospice, I was very accepting of of her death even before she died. I am a Reiki master. I gave her Reiki in the hospice before she transitioned because I just wanted her to have a peaceful transition. I did not want her to suffer anymore. Yes, you have experienced so many losses and I'm I'm sorry that your sister lived a very short life and I can appreciate how you you notice the signs. That's kind of how I'll put it. I think signs do come to us as as we're moving around, we can notice them or maybe not notice them, but it's kind of special when we do. And I I can appreciate you being able to do that. Before I push record, you mentioned a sign that you observed of your grandmother. You want to tell that story really quickly? Because it touched my heart. Sure. That, that so. she's here in spirit <laughs> with us as, as well as I'm sure your sister in spirit. I'm very open to signs from the universe and I'm very spiritual. I was brought up Catholic. That is not a religion that I identify with at this time. So earlier today, I saw a food truck that said abuelas empanadas. So my grandmother was of Chilean descent. When I lived with her, she made baked empanadas all the time, Chilean style. And what do I mean by Chilean style? Chilean empanadas include beef, olives, and eggs mm. and raisins. And that's how grandma made her empanadas. So when I saw the food truck, Abuela's Empanadas, I smiled and was really happy and took it as a sign that grandma is making her presence known. And I bought two beef empanadas. <laughs> the empanadas there are not baked, but they're fried. And I bought them. 
They sound good. Sure <laughs> yeah, they were delicious. They I'm going to be delicious. on the lookout for those. And I know when I find <laughs> it, I'm going to think of your grandma. <laughs> yes. So you are a Reiki master. Like, I, that makes me sit up straight because I want to know more about what, what that means. What is What is that for the listeners? The best way to describe Reiki is it's an energetic massage. So the Reiki that I am trained in is Yusui Reiki that originates from Japan. Think of Reiki as an energetic healing technique that helps promote relaxation and put your body into a state of calm. With Reiki, it helps make sure that the energy is able to flow freely throughout your body. We don't take the time to address deep-rooted emotional issues such as anger, sadness, shame, guilt, and grief that they can manifest into physical ailments and sometimes physical diseases in our body. So Reiki does bring that back, that that balance into our bodies and make sure that energy is able to flow freely. It helps reduce stress, anxiety, I know that New York Presbyterian here in New York City, many of their nurses are also Reiki practitioners. One of my good friends, her brother is an orthopedic surgeon. He no longer works at New York Presbyterian. He used to, but he himself has seen the impact of Reiki on some of his patients before they went into surgery. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty impressive. My best friend, she has Crohn's disease. I gave her a Reiki session before she had a major surgery. This was her first Reiki session with me. She's not one to relax. She's a very busy mother of two young boys. She's a wife. She is a mental health therapist. She's also in a PhD program. So she just has a lot on her plate. She was really able to let go and relax during the Reiki session before she went into surgery. And I was really happy that I was able to do that for her. It's important to know with Reiki that I'm not doing the work. So basically as a Reiki master practitioner, what that means is another Reiki master has attuned the energy pathways in my body to be able to channel the Reiki energy. So I'm not doing the healing. I am just a clear and open channel or vessel for the Reiki energy to flow through my body, through my arms, through my hands, to the parts of my client's body that need healing. So when I'm doing an in-person Reiki session, I'm just hovering over my client's body. I'm not directly touching my client. Some common sensations that my clients have shared that they've experienced include tingling. They might feel certain parts of their body heat up. And when they do notice these sensations, that means that 
wherever they're experiencing these sensations in their bodies, that's a part of their bodies need healing. I'm very educated in the seven main chakras in our body. So some of my clients come to me to open, align, and activate their seven chakras. And I find that many of my clients in one session, they're only able to focus on one chakra. It's just too much for your body to focus on all the chakras. So just better to focus on one issue at a time. I know how much Reiki did for me in my journey, especially as an adoptee. I never thought that I would be doing this work. Life just led me in this direction. But that is fascinating. (laughs) Wow. See, I always learn so much doing this podcast because there's so many adoptees that are doing amazing work, healing work, you know. And when you say there are deep rooted issues, that can develop into physical ailments, you know, everybody has to like pay attention. That's pretty big deal. Yeah. Cause we do have these issues or stresses in our life, emotional, that we don't want to manifest into some sort of physical illness or ailment. And I, and I'm glad you shared that whole process. Cause I, I didn't realize you actually do not make physical contact with a client. My hands are gently just hovering over them. Yeah, I didn't know that. (laughs) That is really something. What made you, you said you had this work done. What made you have this work done? So one of my dear, dear friends, she's actually one of my best friends. She is also an adoptee who grew up in Long Island with me. We both grew up in Farmingdale and we met in junior high school and there was always a deep connection between us. She was adopted from Colombia. I was adopted from Korea. And we always just had that adoptee connection going. Back in 2012, she invited me to a Reiki healing circle in Long Island. I was a little hesitant on going with her because we did go to a Reiki circle the previous year with my grandmother. And there just was a lot of drama with the people who were part of that circle. And we no longer felt comfortable being in that space. So I was a little hesitant, but I'm really glad that she encouraged me to go because this Reiki master practitioner and teacher, she's Chinese American. And as a proud Asian American, I saw myself in her. So I felt very comfortable and at ease in her healing circle after attending a few of her monthly healing circles. I started going to her individually for Reiki through her monthly Reiki circles and through the individual healing sessions. I learned that there was a lot that I suppressed from not really processing the grief around losing my adopted mother when I was only 10 years old. So I didn't really start working through that until Reiki entered my life. I kept going to the circles and then I got to the point where my Reiki master teacher saw my potential and encouraged me to learn Reiki. And I was extremely hesitant. I was doubting myself. I didn't think I was ready. And quite honestly, I didn't think that I was deserving to learn Reiki. I've struggled with a lot of self-worth issues over the years, and I've, I've worked really hard on them. 
whatever I have worked on in the past, I've noticed that the clients that the universe brings to me, that they are currently working on these issues. So since I have been able to work on these issues, I can be an authentic guide for them in terms of helping them with these same issues. 2016, I decided to take the plunge and I learned Reiki 1. My Reiki master teacher, she attuned me to Reiki 1. And with Reiki 1, what that means is you can do Reiki on yourself, your family, your friends. But what you can't do is you can't open up your own business and start building your clientele base. I was very hesitant to continue on with my Reiki journey after I became Reiki 1. And I doubted myself whether I should continue on with Reiki 2. My Reiki master teacher, she was really encouraging on that. So a year later, 2017, I started taking Reiki 2 classes with her. I finished those classes with her. After Reiki 2, I thought that was it. The next level after Reiki 2 is Reiki master level. Reiki 2, you can start opening up a business and building your clientele and giving and re giving Reiki to your clients. And then at the Reiki master level, you can teach Reiki to people. I'm very grateful for my husband because he was the one who encouraged me to continue on with my journey and take Reiki master classes. So I did with my same teacher. And again, after I completed my Reiki master training, I had another breakdown whether I should open up my own business. I had a lot of uncertainty around that and whether I was good enough to do that. I leaned into my discomfort. I just took the plunge. I fortunately was able to speak to some of my friends, like my best friend, the Kalamid Adopti, who is also a small business entrepreneur. She is also a Reiki master like myself and a feng shui master. And she shared business tips with me. And I spoke with some of my other friends who are small business entrepreneurs as well. And I created my Reiki company here in New York State as an LLC. The name of my Reiki company is Ha Healing Hub. Ha is my Korean last name. And the reason why I included Ha in my Reiki company name is to pay respect to where I came from. And because Reiki helped me heal wounds from my adoption, particularly abandonment, also helped me heal the wounded 10-year-old who is still grieving from the loss of her adopted mother. So so I'm paying respect to, to where I came where I came from with with Ta Healing Hub. I love the name of your business and I'll be sure and put all of that in the show notes and congratulations. Like I'm just in awe of all that you have done. You like move through the fear, move through the feeling any like unworthiness and and all of that kind of stuff. And to do that kind of work the healing work, I just imagine it being such a huge benefit to you and so many others. Definitely. I'm really grateful for all the helpful people that got me to this place. My best friend, 
my grandmother, my husband, my tribe of other holistic healing practitioners, my Reiki master teacher, have all all, all guided me here. So now I can be of service to others on, on similar journeys or on different journeys. Even as a Reiki master practitioner, my journey still continues. I'm still having breakdowns and I'm still having breakthroughs. So that internal work is crucial. We need to continue doing that. For sure. Would you say that because of your journey with Reiki, that led you into exploring more deeply the subject of grief? Because I know earlier you said some of the five stages resonate with you. So you've, it sounds like you have done maybe a much deeper dive than I have. Would you say Reiki led you to do that? I started looking into the five stages of grief more so after my grandmother passed. And I don't really identify with any of them in terms of losing my grandmother, except for the last phase, acceptance. As I mentioned earlier, I accepted her death even before she actually transitioned and I and I helped prepare her for that. In terms of losing my adoptive mother, some stages resonate more with me. I was never in denial of her death, but I was angry. I was certainly angry as a child mm-hmm. and I did not take the time to process that anger until my 20s. Never really felt I was in the bargaining stage. So pretty much the ones that resonate with me are anger, depression, and acceptance. Yeah. Particularly for losing my mother and for my grandmother, acceptance, but acceptance before she actually passed. Mm-hmm. Well, what would you like to say about what you've learned about grief and how you see it? Grief is extremely complex. We respond to losses in different ways. What I learned with losing my grandmother is, again, my family and I, we're all different. We need to heal in different ways. So what works for me might not work for them. And I did not quite understand that right away when my grandmother died. And then I realized taking a step back that this is what they needed. And this is what I needed. And just because what I needed was different than what they needed, didn't make what they needed bad. It wasn't long. We're just different. Right. We're on different journeys. And there's no one right way to, to process grief and respond to loss. And that was my biggest takeaway because I, I was having a difficult time accepting how some of my family were responding to the loss of my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And I was upset that some relatives did not come to Florida in grandma's last few days. And even though she was not fully conscious she was not awake. She was still alive. And all the nurses and doctors, they told my family and I who were there that the hearing is the last to go. So like 
grandma could still hear everything that we were saying. So, but again, I know that I'm different and perhaps other relatives who were not able to make that trip, perhaps they were not in the capacity to handle that. I was and I am, that's just, that's just who I am. And I knew right away that I had to be with grandmother, with my grandmother. I miss Thanksgiving with my husband, my father-in-law and my cousin, and they completely understood I had, I needed to be with grandma. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. And I made the right decision for me. Yeah, we have to make the decision that works best for us. And, and I'm glad you shared that, that the grief is some, it's something that is very individual. It's very personal, too. There are some days where I'll just be reminded of grandmother and I'll cry. I'll lean into that cry and I'll cry. And then there are other days where I may not be thinking about her as much. So it is her birthday today. So I'm thinking of her a lot today. But I've noticed as time goes by that I am thinking of her less than I did when she just transitioned. And that doesn't mean I don't love her or miss her. Of course I do. I just know that She's busy wherever she is right now. I know that the people that listen to your podcast, we all have very different spiritual beliefs. For me, I do believe in reincarnation. I do believe in past lives. I do believe that my grandmother and I, that we do have a past lives connection. I do believe that grandma has not reincarnated. Whatever spiritual realm she is in, she's she's busy. She's doing her thing. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. Right. Well, I am glad that you shared with me and the audience the relationship that you had with your grandmother and continue to have just in a in a different way, sounds like to me. And I, too, believe that, you know, a lot of people in my family have transitioned. I mean, a lot. I often feel their presence ever so near me. Like you, I... Try to be aware of the, the signs and, and notice them and know that they are there to guide me and to give me much comfort. When you mentioned the food truck or the truck with the, what do you call it, that your grandmother used to make? Empanadas. Yeah. I'll have an experience where something will go by me or it'll catch my attention somehow and I'll say, oh, that's my dad. You know, that's my mother or that's my, my aunt. Like there's just so many people that I think signs of their presence, though they're not here physical, is ever present. So I appreciate you sharing that. And so now I wanted to talk about you being connected, better connected to the adoption community, which I know that you've done that in many, many ways. You've written pieces that have been published. It's just your overall participation has been pretty big. And, and I was thinking where we met, which is through the Adoptive Voices Writing Group, uh, this last cohort, which was nine, we're getting ready to go to 10. And I, I was happy to hear that you will be coming back. And so being connected to the community in this way and many other ways, what's been the most meaningful to you? Having a community, being able to fully be seen, heard, and acknowledged without really trying. 
fellow adoptees just get it. And that doesn't mean that every adoptee that another adoptee meets that you're going to connect with because there are certainly some adoptees that I connect with more than others. But I'm really grateful to have this adoptee community. And I didn't even know it existed until I got back from my first trip to South Korea in 2014. I wrote two personal essays for NBCnews.com. One was published the last week that I was in Seoul, in South Korea, and I was in Seoul for three weeks. And I remember several Korean adoptees reached out to me on social media about my personal essay on the reason why I decided to go back to Korea and try to find my birth mother. I was overwhelmed in a joyous way and just really excited that these other Korean adoptees were reaching out to me and some of them shared with me that my story inspired them to reconnect with their roots and try to find their birth parents as well. And I love giving back any way that I can. I truly believe that's why I'm here on this earth. I am empowering, inspiring others by being my authentic self at all times. Yes. So when I got when I got back to New York City, I was just thinking about all the adoptees who reached out to me after my first personal essay was published at NBCnews.com. I learned about this nonprofit called Also Known As for intercountry adoptees. I attended one of their events in 2015. It was a storytelling workshop that was also in collaboration with the MOP. And they had professional storytellers from the MOP work with several adoptees in terms of crafting a story that was lying dormant in our in ourselves for a while. And I talked about my time in the psychiatric ward and that abusive relationship. And we worked with these storytellers over a couple of weeks. And then we had a showcase where we all performed our pieces. And that was so powerful. And I do still keep in touch with some of the members of my cohort. The majority of them were adoptees. I believe there was one adopted parent. And then after participating in that community storytelling workshop through the moth and also known as I was encouraged to apply to a board position for also known as I remember someone else who was in the storytelling workshop with me. She also applied and we, we became board members of also known as in 2015. I was very plugged into the adopted community from 2015 to 2016. At the time in 2015, I was unfortunately laid off from a content marketing specialist I had at a technology company called LivePerson. I was looking for a job. I found a job by networking in the adopted community. And a job was actually created for me based on my specific skill set. So that full-time position that was created for me was a role at 
the Donaldson Adoption Institute as the communications and development manager. I was there for about a year and a half. Unfortunately, it closed because we had no money. We ran out of money. So they let go of me because they did not have money to pay me anymore. 2015 and 2016, at that time, there was a lot of adoptee things in my life. I was working full-time at the Donaldson Adoption Institute. I was leading preteen adoptee workshops once a month for All Together Now. And I was also on the board of also known as, and it just was too much. I was overwhelmed to the point where I had to resign from my board position with also known as in 2016. I also resigned from my position with All Together Now so I could just focus on my full-time position at the Donaldson Adoption Suit. With all those things, I just didn't feel like I had a break from not thinking about being adopted. And quite honestly, in my opinion, I'm not saying this, this is everyone, every adoptee's opinion, but just being in that is not healthy. For me, it certainly was not healthy. So I had to prioritize myself. I am grateful for all of those opportunities because I learned so much about myself, particularly like as an adoptee, but I just was too consumed in the adoption world with with those three commitments. That sounds like a lot. Was was April Dinwoody, was she at the Donaldson when you were there, Donaldson Institute? Yes. Yes. She she yeah, she 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 was my boss, so she's she was the chief executive of the Donaldson Adoption Suite. Okay. So have there been any challenges that you've experienced? You you mentioned maybe overload can happen if we're not careful. That can be challenging. Is there anything else? The only challenge I can think of is an internal challenge, not an external challenge, not a challenge with any adoptee, just a challenge with my adoptee self. After being so steeped into the adoptee community back in 2015 and 2016, when I was let go from my position of adoption adoption suit, I took a break from being plugged into the adoptee community. I didn't attend as many adoptee events as I had when I was part of the Donaldson Adoption Institute altogether now, also known as. What I did was I did continue leading workshops, writing workshops for also known as. That was my way of giving back to the community and still being a little part of it. But I really did take take a step back. It just was too much for me in 2015 and 2016. And I wanted to turn my attention to other things. Part of me felt bad for for doing that and then now at a different point in my life now it's 2023 I feel that I'm slowly putting myself more into the adoptee community again I'm a bit more open to meeting other adoptees than I was when I was let go from the Donald Adoption Institute doing my writing workshops for also known as for adoptees the challenge was like I felt bad. I, in a weird way, I felt I felt like I was being a bad adoptee because I need to take a step back from 
the adoptee network. And then in hindsight, I was I was not being a bad right. You were exercising self care. Yeah, I'm glad I was exercising self care. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. I needed I needed a break. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you you shared that because you were not, and nobody is being a bad adoptee when they are self caring. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I know that you are going to read. Well, first of all, I know that you wrote a piece that you told me about in Adoptee Voices, the uh, cohort nine, that will likely be published in the future. And you said that you would read it today. So I'm happy to, to hear you do that. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. So this is a piece I wrote during the last week of cohort nine of the Adoptee Voices Hone Your Craft writing group. And the prompt was to write a birth announcement or some other type of notification for after we came out of the fog. So the way that I approached this piece was to write a letter to my, to my Korean self. So my Korean name is Hami Young. So I start the letter with dear Hami Young. So just wanted to give that context before I get in. Thank you. Dear Hami Young, you entered the world as your authentic self when you came out of the fog three months after your 30th birthday in 2014. You were on a three week journey across the motherland of Korea where you visited Seoul, Busan, and Jeju Island. You traded your long black hair for a shoulder-length trim with copper-red highlights, shed your rough skin for smooth and silky skin at a bathhouse, expanded your concept of spirituality from your Roman Catholic upbringing to a weekend stay at a Korean Buddhist temple and tea with the Zen master. For the first time, you truly felt Korean. You didn't just look Korean, you are Korean. No one can deny that anymore, not even your stepmother. New friends that you befriended in Korea even told you that some of your mannerisms were innately Korean. This filled you with golden beams of joy and pride. You are no longer just Heather Schultz. You are Heather Schultz and Ha Mi Young. It is possible to merge your Korean and American halves. While your trip to Korea, specifically a visit with Eastern Social Welfare Society, prompted more unanswered questions about your story from the time of your birth to arriving to JFK to your adoptive family on November 10th, 1984, you gained a deeper sense of your identity and belonging to your Korean ancestry. You started to unravel how adoption affects relationships with yourself, family, and friends. You also started to acknowledge how deep-seated emotions of abandonment and shame have stifled you. You are in a safe place to start processing these complex emotions, work through them, and eventually release them. Continue on this journey. I'm so proud of you. You're courageous, beautiful, and powerful just the way you are right now. Love, Heather. That is a beautiful letter to yourself. Yeah, I love that line. You are no longer just Heather Schultz. Yeah, I felt that. 
and you are in a safe place. Continue on this journey. Yes. Thank you so much for reading that. Thank you for giving me the space to to read that. It's one thing to write, and then it's another layer of healing to actually recite and share that with people. So thank you. It is for for you and for the listener. I do believe that. I think that's that speaks to the success of Adoptee Voices and, and many other writing groups where it's profound. Like it's so it's so special what happens when when you get to write and then read aloud, be heard, and then the listener, as you know, those six weeks, it's like, what? You know, you're just like in this space with other adoptees. Yeah, something very magical, it happens when we're all together like that, doing that kind of work, because it is work. Yes, yes. Let's be clear, it is work. Well, I want to honor your time and and so in closing, is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to share? No. We covered a lot, didn't we? We covered a lot. A lot of good, good stuff. So I thank you for having this conversation with me. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate Heather's vulnerability and transparency during our time together in the hopes that if at least one person can identify with her experience in some way and be encouraged, it's worth it. I find hope and resiliency in her story, and I believe you will too. I'm excited about experiencing Reiki by a master like Heather. She has piqued my interest because I love the idea of learning another way to address emotional needs through attending to the physical body. I'm excited to take Heather up on her invitation for me to partake in that kind of healing. I appreciate hearing about Heather's relationship with her grandmother, the first person to hold her when she arrived to the States. Their forever bond seems to have started then. She lovingly remembers such a dear woman and receives the ever-faithful signs of her spiritual presence. Spirituality is a deeply personal experience, and I wholeheartedly embrace the significance of discovering our loved ones in new ways, who have transitioned, and who will continue to be a part of our lives despite their physical absence. Thank you, Heather, for having this conversation with me. I know your heart more and more each time we chat. So much resonates with me in how you have managed the losses the grief, and acceptance through painful times during the course of your life. I haven't experienced the exact same tragedies, but I have found many of the same tools you have to learn to manage troublesome and hard times in different ways that befall us all in this life. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow and or give a five-star rating so that others can find it too. During the course of your day, we hope that you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is the best way to grow the show. Remember to share this podcast on social media to spread the word. Hashtag Adoptee Land.